There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, you're back. I'm back. Yeah, it was strange being off for the last couple of weeks, but it's always fun to be back. Back and better than ever. Exactly. In your words, right? Right on. Well, the last two weeks, Greg, we had a discussion with Sam, a franchise lawyer at Lindsay McCarthy. And that was pretty interesting going through what a franchise is and some of the legal ramifications of entering those contracts. And Because, hey, maybe someday we'll have a franchise of the free lunch out there. Exactly. But today we're going to carry on with something more close to what we normally talk about, right? We're going to talk about business cycles and the price of oil and what's happening there, right? Pretty volatile stuff right now, for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, the price of oil, well, not to jump in too much, but was it during the peak of the pandemic was like negative one day. That's right. And then it went to, I don't know, $103 or something. Exactly quite a significant difference. But but let's talk about business cycles first. So when we talk about business cycles, we talk about this cyclal... I can't even say that word. I was going to say cyclality? Cyc- cyc- cyclicality? Cyclicality. There you go. Of how you go through four phases, expansion, peak, contraction, and trough. So that is often called the boom and bust cycle. So if you ever hear that term boom and bust, they're just talking about the business cycle. That's right. Right? So the expansion is really just that. It's when a business is, it's when an economy is growing. It's when things are, you know, people are making money, right? During yep. expansionary periods. When we hit the peak, well, that's exactly what it is. Like that's the, the end of the growth, right? Yep. The transition for sure. Yeah. And we go obviously through a contraction period where we have prices come off and we hit a trough, which is the absolute bottom. But now those are easy things to say. Like there's a there's a cycle to this pattern. There's a wave to this pattern. But they're not easy to know which part of the cycle you're in at the time. Right. Right? So that's the hardest part. Now, the, the pattern of a business cycle can be measured in length from peak to peak or trough to trough. Doesn't really matter. And it can be measured in terms of months and years. And on average, those cycles tend to last around seven years, but there's no definitive time frame for how long they actually will last and That's right. during any cycle, right? So it's kind of like when we talk about the stock market and we talk about how there's corrections and how 90% of calendar years have a 10% or more correction. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they all have a 10% or more correction. It's just, it's just statistical data, sure. right? So how do we measure the business cycle? Measuring the business cycle is done by looking at GDP or gross domestic product. Now, I remember from my days of studying, which wasn't that long ago, GDP, I'll give you the formula, Greg. You'll yeah. you remember this. GDP equals C plus I plus G plus NX. Wow. That sounds complicated. Well, it is and it isn't, right? GDP equals consumer spending yep. plus investment yep. plus government spending plus your net exports of a country. Gotcha. Right? So it is the most common measurement used to 
during the business cycle to see where things are at. The GDP is a total value of all the goods and services produced in that economy at a specific time. And it's measured at the end of each month, quarter, or year. And that that varies. Now, in Canada, we tend to measure GDP on a quarterly basis or report it on a quarterly basis, right? Although it is measured on a monthly basis, sure, right? There are other potential measures for business cycles, and we could get into what's a leading indicator, a lagging indicator, coincident indicator, things like that in regards to the market and cycles. But other potential measures could be employment levels or industrial production and those the rates of change within those. But these are used a little less often than just GDP itself, right? right? Sure. So when measured and graphed over time, the business cycle tends to move in this wave-like pattern, and it shows economic growth that is obviously followed by decline, and it repeats itself. It's a repeating pattern, right? Sort of reminds me of the the phase of market, you know, stock market returns. You know, the the growth phase, and then they peak, and then returns are you know tend to drift off, and then hit bottom at some point, and then recover mm-hmm. again. And we look at that cycle in more behavioral terms, but the business cycle tends to be what drives those stock market returns anyway. Yeah, for sure. And the stock market is actually a leading indicator of the business cycle. Mm -hmm. So that's a good point. Listen, when the economy is growing and GDP is increasing, basically there's just more output of goods and services being created. There's jobs being created, things being built and sold, right? Like that's the expansion period of a business cycle. However, that economy only has so many resources, which would include things like labor, raw materials and other inputs. And like we're in right now, those things can get interrupted, right? I mean, we've got labor issues in Canada. Sure, We've got supply chain issues in regards to raw materials and that affects outputs. But eventually the increasing demand for these limited resources begins to increase their price. And that's what we would call, I don't know, inflation, Mm -hmm. right? What we're experiencing right now. And as the price of these inputs to produce goods and services rise, so it is the price of the output. So that's that's that inflationary number, right? So what happens to buyers? They begin to ease off on their purchases. So as things become more expensive, people just tend to want to buy them less, right? Yep. So this relaxes that demand for goods and services. And as a result, production falls and the demand for inputs falls and prices begin to ease off. And this is what I would call the contraction period, Greg. Yep. Right? We've got, you know, things have grown. We've hit a peak. And now things are starting to sell off. Now, typically, expansions last longer than contractions in the business cycle, just the same as in the stock market. Bull markets last longer than bear markets, right? Yep. But they're both present during a cycle. Yep. The long-term trend for economic growth still tends to slope upwards, and that's because that expansion lasts longer. As I said, the top of the cycle is called a peak, and this is the point where the cycle, where the value of gross domestic product is at its absolute short-term maximum value. And as that value then falls, its lowest value before it begins to rise again, and that is called the trough, right? So it it hits a bottom. right? And the time between that peak and the next peak or trough and trough is actually considered one full business cycle. Yep. That was a long introduction. It was. And (laughs) But you sort of covered all the basics there. And, you know, so you talked about the phases, the expansion, the peak, the contraction, and the trough. And again, that cycle repeats itself over time and and results in the, the boom and bust that you talked about. Now, you can't really predict those, but forecasting when an economy will expand or contract and knowing when the key turning points have arrived is important for consumers and for business. 
because it determines their spending and saving patterns, which sectors of the economy to invest in, or how much to spend on equipment and, and hiring of workers. So you know, when you talk to most economists, if GDP falls for more than two successive quarters or six months in a row, that's typically what they define as a recession. Right. And if you get into much longer periods of time, like prolonged periods of time of falling GDP, which can have severe consequences in the economy, that's typically when you, you see what's classified as a depression, like the Great Depression, which you know began in 1929. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned cycles typically just last over seven years when measured peak to peak, but there really isn't a definitive time frame for how long they usually last. And, and what's interesting is, you know, if you look at the great financial crisis, which we're now calling the credit crisis, you know, the economy went into recession and began expanding again in 2009. And it pretty much went in a straight line up through March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. And that recession was actually very short. Mm-hmm. And so while it I'm not even sure if it officially was a recession. I'm not sure that it lasted two quarters. but it lasted about two weeks. Yeah, it seemed like that. So even then, you know, that particular period lasted from the trough in 2009 to the trough in 2020. So that's 11 years right there. So clearly, as you say, the seven years is an average, but it by no means defines exactly how long the, the business cycle will be. Well, I think that was the longest bull market in stock market history. And in stock right? market history, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and again, because the stock market tends to tends to lead the economy, that kind of makes sense. So you mentioned how the growth of the economy, it's represented in a wave-type pattern of expansions and contractions, the business cycle. And the most notable one, which we just talked about, was the Great Depression that, that began in 1929. And the expansionary phase associated with spending on the Second World War, which began in the, in the 40s. Well, and let's hope we're not going into an expansion period based on a World War III. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the subject for a whole a whole other podcast. Yeah. So what's happened, though, is the magnitude of the swings and expansions and contractions has diminished over time due to the attempted management of the business cycle by way of the government's fiscal and monetary policies. And that's been particularly the case since the end of World War II, when a lot of international economic organizations were formed, like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, etc., you know, and countries coordinated the management of their trade and financial relationships a little bit more extensively with each other. Now, in Canada specifically, the business cycles from 1982 to 2017, you know, have been noticeable. And there's periods of growth by periods uh, followed by periods of decline and and several peaks. And you can think of, you know, 1982 was obviously a low point. That was the peak of interest rates back then, and the economy grew, you know, through till I believe. When was the next recession? I think it might have been 2014. No, sorry. No, uh, from 1982? Yeah, there was, there was 1990, and that was when Kuwait was invaded by Iraq. And that caused a big sell-off in the market and a, and a contraction in the market of the economy as well. Weapons of mass destruction. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of factors that determine the length of the business cycle, and some are domestic and others are external. So domestic factors would be things like the investment by businesses, individual spending, how much overall prices are increasing, which we call inflation, or decreasing, which is deflation over time, wage levels, unemployment levels, the availability of raw materials, and also how much innovation is occurring in the economy. So those would be more of the domestic factors. External factors would include things like the demand by other countries for our goods and services or our exports, which, of course, in Canada would be things like like wheat 
agricultural products, things like that. Mm-hmm. The demand by us for other countries' goods and services, which are our imports, where other countries are in terms of their own business cycle or a crisis that may impact all of these factors, such as war, whether or natural disasters. And obviously right now we're, we're dealing with, with war in the Ukraine. Well, I know a few weeks ago I had somebody reach out to me and they said, you know, what do you think of the economy? Where are we at? Do you think it's still going to grow? And at that time, you know, we talked about how uh, there was a lot of momentum, how there was a lot of jobs being created within Canada, the U.S., kind of all over, mm-hmm. right? Prices were going up. We had inflation. Interest rates were trending up. Like things seemed poised for economic expansion still, right? right. And I remember I said the only thing that could really upset this in the short term is is if Russia actually does invade Ukraine. Yeah. Now that's obviously occurred. That's right. right? Yeah, exactly. And and that can that can have a big impact. And as I say, we're we're experiencing that now on a number of factors. And we'll talk about that as it relates to oil in just a bit. So the government does have a role in business cycles. You know, they measure, first of all, they measure the value of GDP over time and publish the results. And they establish official dates for the business cycle, meaning the dates of its peaks and troughs. And and typically you find that that's well in, in the rear view mirror, meaning that governments often define when the a business cycle or a recession, let's say, started and when it ended. And that's usually months, months later when they describe that. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, that information is pulled together by Statistics Canada, but there's also private firms such as the C.D. Howe Institute that monitor business cycles. In Canada, we've been recording GDP on an annual basis since 1926 and a quarterly basis since 1947. And in 1961, they began reporting monthly. Well, I would say with today's access to information, I wouldn't be surprised if that changed to weekly or even daily or minute by minute. Yeah, exactly. So in general, less fluctuation in the economy is considered better because individuals and businesses, you know, can then plan their spending and investment. And so to try to achieve a smoother business cycle, governments can manage the length and value of the peaks and troughs. And they do this by increasing or decreasing their own spending or investment in infrastructure to add or subtract to the value of GDP over time. And the way the government spends its money is what you'll hear referred to as its fiscal policy. And also, governments can encourage changes in interest rates through the Bank of Canada in Canada or the Federal Reserve in the U.S. to affect individual and business spending and investment. And so that is known as monetary policy. So when you hear the business news refer to Canada's fiscal policy or Canada's monetary policy, that's where they're talking about government spending and central bank actions. I always got confused with fiscal and monetary policy and the difference. So I had this little way of reminding myself Fiscal policy starts F for federal, and that is based around taxation. There you go. Right? Yeah. And monetary policy is money supply, right? So that's how I've always tried to remember them. And as long as you don't say F is for federal reserve, then you're okay. Gets confusing in the States. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the risks that you run into in the business cycle is the presence of what's known now as irrational exuberance. And I believe that was first coined by Alan Greenspan, one of the previous leaders of the U.S. Federal Reserve. And rational exuberance is when purchasers are so confident that prices will continue to rise that they ignore underlying values of of assets and continue to bid up prices. And that kind of activity can drive the peak of the business cycle higher and, and creating what's called an asset bubble. 
And many of us and many listeners will be very familiar with asset bubbles like the the technology stock bubble or technology company bubble back in the the late 1990s and the early 2000s. And then at some point, some factor will cause purchasers to re- realize that prices don't reflect value, at which point they stop buying. And then the, at that point, the bubble can then burst and prices can fall dramatically. So governments are going to try to manage the business cycle in order to avoid irrational exuberance and avoid some of the asset bubbles that we've seen in, in stock prices, in oil prices and housing prices. Well, you bring up a good point. Housing prices, I got to tell you, and I know we're going to get into this subject next week, I believe, but my sister-in-law's neighbor just sold their house in one day. Yep. That's pretty good. With 25 showings and a bid of $100,000 over the asking price. Yeah. Now this isn't a $10 million house where it was like $100,000 over 10 million. Right. This is like $100,000 over $600,000. Yeah. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah, so that was, is irrational exuberance, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. One thing you also pointed out was you know, inflation and the government's response to that. And I think there is a misunderstanding, specifically in the US, because I know like inflation is running, I don't know, 7 7.5%, depending on who you talk to, right? Yeah. And some US people keep saying, well, Biden's got to do something about inflation. Yeah. It's like, well, it doesn't really work that way. No. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, what does the president have to do with inflation? Like, they only have so much control. Right. That's right. And I think a lot of the inflation, you know, there's when you look at what's happening right now, even prior to Russia's attack on the Ukraine, a lot of that inflation was caused by, you know, you mentioned, you know, supply and demand balances. And there was a big imbalance, you know, because coming out of the COVID recession, there was a, a huge amount of demand. And supply had problems. You know, yeah. There was problems with supply chain issues. There was just problems with gearing up to meet the demand of a, a group of buyers that now had lots of money in their pockets from not spending mm-hmm. during the COVID lockdown periods and also receiving government benefits. Right. And you had things like the Suez Canal being blocked by a freighter. Sure. <laughs> which doesn't, that seems irrational that one freighter can hold up a world's wide supply of goods. But yes. Apparently it did for a while. For sure. It leads us into our next part of our discussion, which is the price of oil. The price of oil obviously has gone up dramatically in the last year. In the last year, we've gone from a period where a barrel of oil was minus $35 one day to a point just a few weeks ago where it hit $130. Yep. It's a pretty dramatic difference. But what does it mean for Canadians when they fill up their gas tanks? I mean, it means that the average price of a liter of gasoline, as of this recording, was $1.77 a liter. Yep. And that's according to the CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association. Right. right? Now, a year ago from this recording, it was $1.23. Pretty significant yep. difference. Yeah, what right? is that, like 40% or something? Something like that, you know, and and I don't think it's coming back down anytime soon, Greg, right? So these ballooning prices, like when I talk to investors, we talk about things like GDP and inflation and things like that and consumer price indexes, but the price of oil isn't always accounted for in those consumer price indexes. We were talking about this before we recorded, right? And so that does weigh heavily on consumers, Canadian consumers. I believe it may actually be a top concern for 2022 as to like, their ability to pay bills with broader inflation and things like the price of oil going up 40, 50, 60%. Yeah. Right? 
So record gasoline prices are a direct result of climbing oil prices. And the price of oil bottomed out, as I mentioned, during the spring of 2020, based on what was happening because of COVID-19. Remember COVID-19, Greg? I do. And nobody, I do. Nobody yeah. talks about it right now. No, it's sort of in the rearview mirror when you think about other things that are going on in the world. Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, today a barrel of oil is roughly $100 a barrel. And that higher price can be a direct result of this invasion in Ukraine. It's also aided by strong consumer demand as the world moves on from COVID-19. And weak supply as the leading oil producing nation's tend to throttle output. Like, you know, one of the things we've been hearing about is, well, why don't they just turn the taps on and have Canadian oil fill the gap of Russian oil? Mm -hmm. It's not that easy, right? Like you can't just open up the taps. Like there's a lot of moving parts to increasing output. Sure. So Russia's war on Ukraine is definitely impacting the price of oil. And it started as a threat and it became a reality. And it's caused, as I mentioned, the price of crude oil now, when we talk about the price of crude, we're talking about West Texas, yep. right? Not the Western Canadian select price that Canada right. actually gets, but yep. but the one that people tend to follow is West Texas. It actually hit $130 a barrel just a few weeks ago before retreating back to somewhere between $90 and $100 a barrel, mm-hmm. right? And I did have a few calls from some people about, well, what does that mean to the Canadian dollar, right? Because the Canadian dollar tends to move with the price of oil, and the Canadian dollar didn't, right? When the price of oil hit $130 a barrel, Canadian dollar stayed stayed where it was, yep. right? And the only way to describe it was volatility. It separated for a period of time, right? From, sure. from that relationship. But, you know, listen, energy giants like Shell, BP, ExxonMobil, they've all pulled out of Russian energy deals. And the Biden administration has actually announced a ban on the importing of Russian oil and petroleum products. Now that Russian oil and petroleum products represents about 8% of the U.S. consumption, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot, right? It's a lot if you're 8% short. Yeah. So now you hear about like the U.S. getting into talks with other countries like Venezuela or some of these less desirable trading nations to try to fill that gap, right? Yeah. So the the Russia-Ukraine crisis has significantly changed global oil supply forecast. And this is a key input in how that price of oil is priced globally, right? Like the the recent speed of oil surge is just truly a matter of changing supply and demand dynamics. And it's not necessarily about traders and speculators trying to make a quick profit. It's, It's bigger than that, right? So after a few years of respite, Geopolitical risk has re-entered the fray, and which is evident, and the markets are sensitive to the latest news of tensions, and that's just the way things get priced, right? So this situation doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. I mean, even if the the invasion ended today, there's a ton of rebuilding that's going to have to occur yeah. in Ukraine, and I don't know what's going to happen. You know, now they're talking about Finland and some yes. other issues. Sure. So there's this geopolitical risk, and it's it's a major issue right now, and, and people, I think, should be concerned about that geopolitical risk. Yep, right on. And so you, you've you just kind of summarized, you know, what went on in the supply side, you know, with fans on importing oil from Russia, that kind of thing. But let's talk just for a minute about the demand component of high, higher oil prices. And so when you, you know, as you mentioned, when the COVID recession hit, oil prices tanked, you know, along with the stock market. And that kind of makes sense because countries all over the world were locking down their economies. And with a lockdown economy, demand for oil and energy products goes down quite a bit. 
And so there was lots of economic disruptions and much less demand for energy with falling oil prices. And as you mentioned, uh, I think at one point, I think when was it in May of 2020 or something, the futures contract actually turned to negative to the tune of, I don't know, $26 a barrel or something. Which no, it was, was 35 So somebody was going to pay you $35 to take their oil. Exactly. So that was obviously the bottom of the market. And then later in 2020, particularly when the vaccines were first announced, oil demand came back much stronger. And at that same time, governments like, you know, the Canadian, the U.S. governments and central banks all over the world were pumping trillions of dollars into the global economy to support workers and, and the unemployed. And so by early 2021, remarkably, oil basically was back to pre-pandemic levels. Crazy. Yeah. And in fact, a demand, I think, in the last three months of 2021 was within a million barrels per day of the pre-pandemic levels. And so, again, the demand for oil, you know, disappeared very swiftly during that early stages of the pandemic and came back extremely strongly with the vaccines and with demand. Well, just the economy opening up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the other, you know, the other big factor in oil pricing is is OPEC. And OPEC to because they have the ability to produce more or less and to ship more or less oil, that can have a big impact on prices. And so back in April 2020, there was a spat between Russia and Saudi Arabia over proposed output cuts in response to COVID-19, and that caused the price of oil to fall. Did it cause Russia to invade Saudi Arabia? Though? Uh, well, probably not specifically, <laughs> but I'm guessing that's been in the plan for a while. Yeah. So now the problem is that oil supply hasn't kept up with the recovering demand. And so what happened is with that quick rebound in consumption, crude oil and refined product inventories fell dramatically through you know late 2021. And so that's why the Biden administration, despite arguing for less fossil fuel consumption overall, as we've heard, you know, for years, they've called for OPEC to increase oil production. Which is so funny to me, because the first thing Biden did when he came into office was to kill Keystone XL. Yes. And now he's calling for, you know, more output. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you look at some of the production by the OPEC countries, Saudi Arabia, for example, which is OPEC's most important member nation, being the largest producer, they produced 10.8 million barrels of oil per day in 2020. And that was down from 12.1 million barrels two years earlier. So their plan to, to throttle back its oil wells and the commitment to that plan is likely going to maintain some upward pressure on prices. And then the other, you know, the U.S. has become, I believe, the second largest producer of oil in the world. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a change that that happened very dramatically over the last decade or so. But in the U.S., oil producers aren't in that much of a hurry to expand production either. So the oil rig count in the U.S. is currently at about 520. Now, that's not bad. It hit a low of 295 a year ago. But when you go back to 2014, there was a high of 1,609 rigs operating, so 520 today compared to 609, 1,609 back in 2014. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. You know, so uh, the oil majors are reluctant to increase their exploratory spending, and that's a trend that's been growing since 2015. And the reason for that is they don't want to invest heavily on new wells only to see supply increase, resulting in price declines and profits declining. So that was a major theme of, if you recall back, they were talking about fracking a number mm-hmm. of years ago. Fracking was the big, the big thing because it allowed oil companies to get wells on stream extremely quickly. 
But a lot of companies went bankrupt because they overextended themselves in building out infrastructure, only to see the oil and gas prices plummet because of the greater supply. Crazy. You know, so there's a large push by some of the world's largest institutional investors to steer investment towards companies with low levels of environmental, social, and governance risk. We've talked about that, ESG risk. And that in itself also has moved money away from oil and gas producers when those dollars would help increase production. And that's another one of the causes of price increases just because of the underinvestment because of ESG over the last several years compared to the situation many years prior. Yeah, we're going to have to revisit ESG because it was something that, I mean, it's, it's all around us, right? Like every, sure. every publicly traded company has an ESG score That's right. that you can, you can look at. But I would say given the current situation of the world, ESG has taken a backseat. Well, that's right. You know, and I think uh, maybe what's happening right now is ESG investors have to look and understand that, you know, oil production and oil consumption, most importantly, is still a very huge part of the global economy. And obviously the, the trend towards ESG and to be more environmentally friendly and reduction of fossil fuel consumption and all that kind of thing is, is a major push and a major goal, but it's, it's not going to be something that happens overnight. Mm-hmm. And these, these short-term impacts because of geopolitical events or supply and demand imbalances and things are going to continue to be part of our, our energy consumption you know, sort of cycle for, for quite some time. Yep, yep. So. Well, I think we've got to end it there. Yep, yep, yeah. for sure. So next time we're talking about the housing market, I think. Yeah, right? and that's something, you know, certainly the price of oil and gas is, is something that affects, I would say, virtually everybody. Housing affects everybody as well, kind of in a different way. From the standpoint, you know, that, say, purchasing a home for most people is the single biggest financial commitment they'll make. Yeah. And so price of housing has a very important impact on on people and we'll spend some time next time on that. I think I read it's telling you I read last night the average house in Canada costs just under $800,000 now. Mhm. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yep. All right. Well, till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.